we continue with the master's manifesto let's pray father i pray that you open our minds and hearts to comprehend and understand what it is that our lord jesus meant in this passage give us insight help us to see beyond our own minds beyond what we can perceive in and of ourselves as the spirit of god is our teacher may we see the deep spiritual realities behind those things on the surface and may the spirit of god speak to my heart and the heart of everyone here in convicting us to be obedient to that which our lord says amen you have heard that it was said of them of all time thou shalt not kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment but i say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whosoever shall say to his brother raka shall be in danger of the council but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell's fire therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there remember that thy brother hath ought against thee leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison verily i say unto thee thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing the king james version our topic today is who is a murderer we all have heard or read of stories of men and women who commit mur murders locally and internationally murders are now a huge scale in the world first local tv then cable tv and then the internet now men have moved from single mur murders to group murdering over time to terrorist murders we hear and read of men shooting many bombing parties killing children in schools teenagers are now getting in on the act individually or are being brainwashed to commit heinous murders and the police files can go on and on like this murders come in all kinds of ways they come through violent crimes domestic squabbles homosexual love triangles as well as heterosexual love triangles they come through gang warfare as a result of arguments fights conflicts misunderstandings they go on all the time in fact murders are so commonplace in our cities and societies that they don't always make the news or the newspapers unless they are bizarre or multiple murder is a really is really a very serious problem in our world getting worse all the time and that doesn't say anything about another form of murder suicide or taking a life by abortion which has been legalized in some countries millions of babies murdered now notice what our lord is saying in verse 21 
you have heard it said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. Where did that come from? Well, you know, if you know anything about the revelation of God, you know it came basically from Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. But scripture has a lot to say about murder than just that. In fact, if we go back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, it said, Whoso sheddeth blood, or man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Instituted capital punishment as a penalty for murder. And the reason is given in the same verse. For in the image of God, man, God, made he man. To take the life of a human being is to assault the image of God. He created in man. And that brings about serious penalty. And so Genesis 9 authorizes capital punishment for those who shed blood. Because man is made in the image of God. I do not believe that the text in Exodus 20 has anything to do with self-defense. I think that we have the right to protect the image of God in our lives and the lives of our families and those about us when they are assaulted and attacked by those who would kill us. But what the Bible is talking about is murder, planned, plotted, to some degree murder. In Exodus 21, 14, we read this. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. Numbers chapter 35, we have some further word from God about this. It says, if he smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he smite him with throwing a stone, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he smite him with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that this was the very first human crime. In Genesis chapter 4, it says this, And Cain talked with his Abel, with Abel his brother. It came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and murdered him. And of course God said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now, Art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand? And so it is that from the first human crime, murder, on through to revelation of God, murder is a biblical issue. For example, we learn that murder is a crime authored by the devil. John 8.44 says the devil is a murderer. And murder is basically authored by Satan. We find something else about murder in Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, which says, For out of the heart proceed evil 
thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, bla- blas- blasphemies. Now listen to me. Murder, theft, and all that other stuff do not happen because of social deprivation. They happen because of a degenerated human heart. Murder does not happen because of stressful situation. It happens because it is authored by Satan himself. Romans 1.29 says that man has been given over to a reprobate mind. He is filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, etc. Man is a murderer because he has a reprobate mind that has been given over to evil because he rejects God. So that murder is a crime authored by the devil. It is a crime that comes out of the evil human heart. In Galatians 5.21, Paul tells us that murder is an act of the flesh. In Proverbs 6, 16 to 17, the Bible says that there are six things that God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And the list is this. Hands, the list is, is, the list is there, but it then comes up with hands that shed innocent blood. Murder is abominable to God. Murder is an act of of an unregenerated human flesh. Murder is a manifestation of an evil heart. Murder is authored by the devil himself. Murder is punishable by death because it is an intrusion into life which is created by the image of God. The New Testament lists some others or lists um, uh, the Old Testament, for instance, lists murders. I'll suggest a few for your memory. Cain, Lamech, Pharaoh, Ahimelech, Joab, the Amalekites, David, Absalom. The New Testament also lists some. Herod, Judas, the high priest, Barabbas, Herodias, her daughter. And that list is special. Biblical history and modern history are literally filled with murderers from Cain till today. You know when you think about a person who is a murderer, when you think about the person, the kind of man who could homosexually assault little boys, stuff that, stuff them in plastic bags and bury them in the ground. You shudder because it's almost an inhuman thing. We can hardly, we can't hardly relate to that. We may relate a little easier to someone who, in a heated argument, takes a gun and shoots somebody. We may relate a little more to a fight where somebody gives someone a blow and takes his life. But it's all the same to God. We shudder, frankly, at the thought of murder. We are afraid of it. We don't like to walk the dark streets of certain towns or of our own city in certain places. We worry about getting double locks on our doors for fear somebody might come and kill us. Let's look at verse 21 again. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not murder, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. Jesus is saying 
you know you believe that it is wrong to murder because if you do, you'll be in danger of judgment. And at that point, the scribes and Pharisees would have said, Amen. We're against murder. We have been taught by them of old, by the rabbinical tradition, that murder is an evil thing. In fact, they thought that they did not murder. Now listen, this is the key. The thought that they did not commit murder was one way in which they convinced themselves they were righteous. Another favorite that they have, they took the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. And because they didn't commit the overt act of adultery, they convinced themselves that they were holy. And so if we reject the idea of murder, and if we say to ourselves, why, that terrible breed of humanity, that indescribable vileness that characterizes murderers, there, then, we are a different kind of person, or they are a different kind of person than I am. I don't murder. I'm not that kind of person. I wouldn't hurt anybody. That way they justify themselves. And we would identify with the Pharisees at that point. But this is precisely where Jesus wants to attack them. Let's back up to verse 20. He says, For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. They say, they said, if we don't murder, we are righteous. And when he said, your righteousness must exceed the uh, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he's saying, not murdering is not enough. He then proceeded to, from verse 21 to verse 48 to list six illustrations of how our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is only the first one. And Jesus and Jesus gives them uh, uh, a teaching here about murder that literally is shocking. It's devastating. And it affects them in three ways. It affects their view of themselves. It affects their view of God. And it affects their view of others. The first point. Jesus' words to them affects their will of their, self, their own self-righteousness. You have heard it said by them of old. Jesus here is reminding them of their tradition, their rabbinic tradition, their religious system. Let's think about this. Your teaching says you must not murder. Because if you murder, you will be in danger of being punished by the civil court. You may say now that, what's wrong with that? It doesn't go far enough, does it? Their full interpretation of the sixth commandment of the Decalogue was this. Don't kill because if you do, you'll get in trouble with the law. But what about God? What about God's holy character? That didn't even enter into the discussion. They had made this so mundane, they didn't even mention God. They didn't even mention divine judgment. They said nothing about inner attitudes. They said nothing about the heart. All they said was, don't murder or you'll get in a lot of trouble. Very superficial. Their invitation, their interpretation stopped short. And because they didn't murder and didn't get in trouble, they decided they were self-righteous, self-justified, perfectly happy about themselves, justified before God. We don't kill 
But listen, they forgot to read the rest of the Old Testament. Because the rest of the Old Testament says that God desires truth in the inward parts. Psalm 56, Psalm 51 verse 6. The rest of the Old Testament says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The rest of the Old Testament says, God knows the hearts and tries the hearts of men and will judge. In other words, the part of God's law they left out was the internal part. It wasn't enough for you not to kill. God was concerned about what was going on inside. They had rejected, they had restricted the scope of God's commandment to an earthly court. They had restricted the scope of God's commandment to an act of murder. And that's why Jesus goes on in verse 22 and says this, but I, but I say unto you, basically say, let me tell you what God really meant by that word in Exodus. Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause. And by the way, in the King James, it says without cause. It's not in the best manuscripts. So I'll leave it out. Whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus simply says, it isn't the issue of murder alone. It's the issue of anger and hatred in your heart. You cannot justify yourself because you don't kill. Because if there is hatred in your heart, you are the same as a murderer. So I say the first point in this statement is that Jesus' words affects, affected their own self-righteousness. It affected how they viewed themselves, how we view ourselves. We do this all the time and we say, oh, you know that category of people that murder? I would never do that. And yet sometimes we get so angry on the inside with someone, we mock people, we may curse people, we may feel bitterness towards people, we may nurse grudges towards people, we have unreconciled feelings towards people, and our Lord Jesus is saying that is the same as murder because God looks at the heart. He said, in effect, in effect, who is a murderer? I tell you, who is a murderer? Anybody who is angry with his neighbor, who is angry with his brother, you are a murderer. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Pretty devastating as well. It strips the Pharisees bare and it doesn't do a bad job on us either, frankly. Anger is murder's root. And our Lord says anger and murder merit equal punishment. In verse 22, he's saying, you're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of the council. You're in danger of hellfire. And that's what's going on in the inside of you. That is what God judges. You may hate more than a murderer hates. You just don't have the opportunity to kill. And even less, and even a less violent hatred than that. Even anger with a brother to any degree is the same in God's eyes as murder. And so frankly, who is a murderer? 
The answer is all of us. All of us. 1 John 3.15 Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. You have hatred. You are a murderer. You have anger. You are a murderer. And in God's eyes, it is no different than a man who goes out and does the crime. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And brother here is used in a broad and generic sense in terms of social relationships. People who, people in your life, not just your spiritual brother, because nobody listening to Jesus at that point would understand the brotherhood of believers. You know, it's amazing to me how we justify ourselves. Everybody does that. Even the worst of men justify themselves. Jesus strips us stark naked of our self-righteousness and says, if you are angry with a brother or if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. It's pretty serious, isn't it? By the way, sociologists and psychologists tell us that hate brings you nearer to murder than any other emotion. And hate is merely the extension of what? Anger. Anger, hatred leads to murder. It is the common source of killing. And by the way, hatred and murder and anger can even kill you because it can eat you alive on the inside. So he uses three illustrations to reveal this sin in verse 22. First one, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. And I said, let's leave out without a cause. So whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. Let me say this. I think there is a righteous anger that we need to talk about. But that is not what Jesus means here. There are times when Jesus took a cord, right, and started throwing people, throwing people around in the synagogue. There are times when God's indignation reaches its absolute limit and explodes. There are times when the vengeance of God busts loose and people lose their lives for a time at an eternity. And there are times when a believer has a right to be angry. In fact, I believe that the holier we get, the angrier we get about some things. In the day when everybody wants to talk about love and let's all get together and don't say anything against anything, we won't stand for anything. I think maybe that some of us ought to learn a little bit about righteous indignation. There are lots of things going on in our country, in our cities, we ought to be mad about. There are some things going on in our schools that we ought to be angry about. There are some trends in our society we ought to be angry about. There are some things that come waltzing into our homes on that ridiculous TV we ought to be angry about. Ephesians 4.26 says, with the kind of anger that is not sin, he says, be angry and sin not. But here he's talking about selfish anger. You're angry with a brother something that's happened something has happened and you're really hopping mad you're angry you're livid and when you hold a grudge against somebody when you hold a bitterness against somebody when you hold something hold anything no matter how small against somebody you are guilty says jesus 
By the way, the judgment at the end of verse 21, that civil court would give, would give, would be execution. And he says the same thing right here. If you're angry, you're in danger of execution. I don't know a civil court in the world right now that would give death penalty to somebody who for getting angry. They may give it throughout history for murder, but not for anger. But if God's calling the verdicts and God is sitting on the throne, he is saying, in effect, that the one who is angry is as guilty as the one who kills. Let's look at the second illustration. Whosoever says, shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. What does that mean? This is a person who ought to go before the council. He's saying to the Jews, you are afraid of the death penalty for murder. On God's terms, it ought to be the same penalty for anger. There ought to be the same penalty for saying Raka. Raka is hard to translate. It's an untranslatable epithet. In other words, it doesn't mean anything. It's sort of a term of derision that doesn't really translate. A malicious term, brainless idiot, worthless fellow, blockhead. It's a word of despising. Contempt, says our Lord, is murder in the heart, and the death penalty is equally deserved. Beloved, what Jesus is saying, what you feel, what you feel inside is enough to damn you to eternal hell, as much as what you do on the outside. I hope you hear that. That's the message. Let's look at the third illustration. Whosoever shall say, thou mros, from which we get the word moron, shall be in danger of hellfire. The word mros, from which we get the word get the word get moron comes apparently from a hebrew root mara and mara means to rebel and in the hebrew bible a fool was one who rebelled against god jesus said to the pharisees you fools you morals only it wasn't wrong for him to say it because it was true they were fools they had rebelled against god the fool has said in his heart there is no god it says in the psalms the fool lives a life set against God. He lives a life of self-will, self-design. And you do a man a favor to go and say, you're a fool to live like that. Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus, said to the disciples, fools and slow of heart to believe. There is a time when we do people a favor by saying you're foolish. He says, if even... Now, you notice the word hellfire in verse 22. It's a very serious word, the word hell. And it describes the eternal state of the wicked. What he was saying is it is an eternal, never-ending fire in a cursed, accursed place. Verse 23. If you bring your gift to the altar, you come for worship and there remember when you get there, you remember your brother has anything against you. Leave there 
your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. In other words, reconciliation comes before worship. That's powerful. Every Jew understood this sin. The Jew knew the standard of worship. The idea of sacrifice for them was a very, very obvious, was very obvious and very simple. If a man committed a sin, a breach, and came, a breach came between himself and God, the relationship was disturbed. How was that to be remedied? It was to be remedied by a contrite and broken heart. And the man was to confess his sin. And the man was to manifest repentance, contrition, and brokenness. And then in order to manifest outwardly that inward feeling, he was to bring an animal as a sacrifice. The animal wasn't the issue. The attitude was. You see, obedience in the heart is better than sacrifice. The sacrifice was merely an outward symbol of a repentant, obedient heart. And so when the breach came and the man repented and in sorrow asked for forgiveness, he set things right with God. He then brought a sacrifice. Jesus is saying to them, before the priest presents your sacrifice, stop. Remember, you, uh, you have your brother and the brother has something against you. Leave that altar. Don't make that sacrifice until you make things right with your brother. Settle the bridge between man and man before you settle the bridge between man and God. In Isaiah 1.11, God said to Israel through Isaiah, For what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? What good are they all? Says the Lord. I am full of your burnt offerings, the fat of rams, the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks, of bullocks and lambs and he goes. I don't want any more of your vain oblations. Your increase is an abomination unto me. Your new moons, your feasts, my soul hate. They are trouble unto me. I am weary of the whole thing. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless and plead for the widow. He's saying, don't you dare come to me with your religion until you have made your life right with the poor and the oppressed and the orphans and the widows. In other words, deal with your brother and then deal with me. And it's a tremendous truth. Isaiah continued in 58 verse 5 and beyond. Read also Jeremiah 7, 9. He says, will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? And will you swear falsely? And will you burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods and then come and stand before me in this house? Of course not. I say this because I believe the church can be everything it can be. If you attend a church to worship the Lord and you are angry with somebody, leave. Stay away till you have made it right. If because of something that happened, somebody's angry with you and you have never made it right, I don't care who that person is. Go and make it right and don't go back until it's right. How can we make our church more what it ought to be? Some people would say, how can we increase our worship? How can we have a more worshipful time? 
and they think well maybe if we had more of a kind of certain kind of music or maybe if we had more aesthetics around us maybe if we had better hymns better special music or better sermons whatever it is listen if you want to enhance worship then everybody who's got something against a brother do not attend church come back when it's right then we'll see the power of the spirit of god in our midst amen the way to increase the meaningful worship is to get the people out who don't have any business being there because there is something wrong i believe that there are times when we come to church and there is a feeling against somebody else in the fellowship or a neighbor in the street or somewhere we know there is a bitterness we do absolutely nothing about it there's a fellow christian that we don't particularly care for and something has happened and we let that little that thing settle in a bitterness the bible says go away offer nothing to god he is not interested in your worship psalm 66 18 says if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord will not hear me first samuel 15 22 says has the lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying obeying the voice of the lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken is better than the fat of rams you say today how do i find that person who is angry with me well i think the implication of the text is that you know this person is angry with you there are people who are angry with me i don't even know it i can't run around just asking everybody and there are other times when i know somebody's angry with me and i try to reconcile with them and i do my best and i ask their forgiveness and i try to make it right and they don't forgive me but i've done the best i can there's nothing more i can do then i am free to worship god i try to be reconciled with some people it's very hard there are some people i should reconcile with but i don't even know that they f- i don't even know that they feel that way but listen when i do know and when i can i do something jesus says the words what jesus says his words are devastating they affect our own self-righteousness and they affect our worship of him now this image is of the lord is graphic he uses an illustration borrowed from the old legal system of dealing with debtors in jewish society he says agree with your adversary quickly he our lord moves to deal with the factor of guilt what does he mean when he says agree with your adversary quickly does he mean that the time will come when the person will die and you'll never you'll never make it you'll never be able to reconcile does he mean the time will come when god will chasten you and judge you and it, it will be too late possibly both of those things he doesn't really explain it but what he does say is this you can't worship me unless your relations are right don't let it go too far is the idea don't let it go to the place where god in judgment moves in 
act before then. And so does Jesus speak to their self-righteousness. He speaks to the issue of worship, speaks to the issue of relationships with others. He devastates their comfort, their confidence, their smugness of their self-righteousness by setting a standard so high that nobody keeps it. Who is a murderer? Ask yourself, who is a murderer? Have you ever been angry? You ever called anybody by name? Maybe your wife or your husband or your child? Somebody under your breath? Have you ever cursed anybody? Do you have anger in your heart? Then you are the same as a murderer because you've allowed conflict, bitterness, hatred, anger to enter into your heart. Let me ask a second question. First question, who is a murderer? Second question, who deserves death and hell? Who does? Who deserves death and hell? You do. I do. We're all guilty of murder. What are we going to do? And that is exactly what Jesus is after. He wants to drive us, drive them to the fact that they cannot be righteous on their own, which will drive them to their knees at the foot of the cross to accept the imputed righteousness that only Jesus Christ can give. Everything that he says here is to drive them to frustration and inadequacy so that they come to him. He died our death. He entered our hell. We deserve death. You deserve death. I deserve death. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We're all murderers. All the Pharisees were. The scribes were. And everybody is. And so Jesus went to the cross, died our death, our hell, and offers us the gift of his own righteousness. That's the meaning of the gospel. And by the way, this is just one crime we've committed. There are myriads more. Okay? But the righteousness that we desperately need comes as a gift from God. Paul calls it the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Let me close with this. God had every reason to be angry with us, didn't he? God had every reason to hate us, righteously to hate us. God had every reason to hold us in contempt. God had every reason to curse us righteously. God had every reason to send us away because we were murderers. But you know something? Even though we are, we are as foul as the Mansons of the slashers, you know, murderers and the slayers of the world, he loves us. He forgives us. He pays our debt and wonder of wonders. And he seeks to reconcile us to himself in his eternal kingdom because he wants to have fellowship with us. Isn't that incredible? Now listen to me. It's if an absolutely holy God can so desire to be reconciled to vile murderers like us, can we find it in our hearts to be reconciled to our brothers? He sets the pattern. God bless you. Thank you. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, again for a strong word. 
we are feeling the power of the Lord Jesus. His words tear us apart. They unbear the deepest secrets of our hearts. They strip us of our self-righteousness. They unmask the foolishness of the thinking that says we've arrived spiritually. We are redeemed and we are saved, most of us, but we are still evil and sinful. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've covered us in a righteousness not our own. Thank you that you died already for us so we don't have to pay the penalty that we deserve. Oh Father, help us to live the kind of life that we should live. Now that you have given us your righteousness, you've also given us your Holy Spirit. We have the power to overcome anger. We have the power to overcome hypocritical worship. We have the power to reconcile with our brother. We have the power to settle our differences in your spirit. And so we pray that we would do that following your example with us, that we might so live as sons of the kingdom to give glory to the king whom we love and to whom we owe everything. Amen.